Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire, where it's drizzling. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, where there's a pale grey light awaiting the drizzle. And today we have a wonderful guest who's going to talk to us about Scottish cricket. I believe that my great-grandfather, so family legend has it, played cricket for Scotland. Richard, perhaps you could introduce our learned guest today. A very learned guest. We're very grateful to him for, as he will do, taking us through the um, rather amazing story of Scottish cricket, which is, um, to most English people, without an ancestor, a relevant ancestor, is a an exotic foreign country as far as cricket is concerned. But anyway, to be our guide to it, we welcome Fraser Sim. Fraser is the author of two cricket books, Saltar and Flannels and Echoes of a Summer Game. He's a distinguished historian, a long-time follower of Scotland's cricket. He's been chairman of the Cricket Society of Scotland for over 25 years. Fraser, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Fraser, you've lived in some very interesting places apart from Scotland, and I hope we'll have time to come to them later on. So I'd like to take you to your first encounter with um, Scottish cricket, which was, the, I think, the visit of uh, Richie Benno's team in 1961. Yes, that's right. Uh, as I was brought up partly in the Lebanon, I, I never saw cricket until I was 12 years old. And we came back to Scotland. I was starting new schooling in Scotland. And uh, my brother and I went to watch Benno's team play Scotland in Edinburgh. And I remember very well sitting underneath the flap of the score box uh, where we were listening to the scorer and the players talk. And sadly, I can't remember very much of what they said because I'm sure there will be some gems in that. But in that match, um, it was notable for the fact that Benno and his team played on uh, despite their being a constant drizzle. Ken Mackay used to joke that Benno got his MBE for playing on just to keep the crowd of 4,000 people happy. <laughs> Later in life, I tried to recapture that by writing to as many of the still living members of that Australian team, and I got replies from five of them. Five wrote back, of one of whom was Benno, but the others were Brian Booth, Peter Burge, Frank Misson and Alan Davison. And Benno remembered it very well and said it was so wet, his, left, his, his leg spinners were, became off-cutters. He couldn't spin the ball, he couldn't grip it or hold it. But to, to, to my mind, that, that was a, an opening uh, in, in the world of cricket. I had never seen or played a cricket match before that. But to, to me, Benno and his team have always been my heroes. It's lovely to know that five of them wrote back to you. What about the Scottish team at the time? Who were the names there? And Mike Deness, of course, who went on to Captain England, uh, was playing. How did he get on? Mike Deness had the scores of zero and one. Oh, dear. Not a great start. It wasn't his greatest day. I do remember Frank Jones, F.A. Jones of the Grange, who was a bit of a big hitter. And he scored, I think, 52 it was. And he made quite an impact. And the crowd, of course, would be willing him on every time he hit, say, Benno for a four or a six. They would get a great cheer. So it was a great atmosphere. Uh, other players in, in, in that team were uh, Ronnie Chisholm, uh, Jimmy Allen, who, who made his way from uh, Edinburgh Academy to Oxford University, Kent and Warwickshire, 
and of course uh, Ray Webster. So there was quite uh, some significantly good players playing for Scotland in that match. Rudy Webster, tell us about him, because he had a very interesting afterlife, didn't he? Well, he, he, yes, he, he had a very short uh, first-class career, but he, he topped the averages in 1962, playing for Warwickshire for part of a year. Uh, but he went off and became latterly a sports psychologist and a diplomat. And I think he advised quite a few high-level cricketers about how to go about their lives and so on. I think he's in in uh, USA. He was, I think, in New Jersey at one time. I think he probably still is there. I must say, we, maybe we should try and approach him and speak to him. He sounds an absolutely fascinating man. Mm. Well, he had a very distinguished afterlife, as I say. Um, it was quite a common pattern, wasn't it, Fraser, for touring teams to sort of finish up in, in Scotland at the when there were long tours that used to finish up there in September. And Bradman played his last innings in, in Britain, in Scotland, didn't he, uh, with some success in 1948. Yes, he played his last two innings, actually. People tend to forget about the Edinburgh match. There's a match at Edinburgh in which he scored 27, and then the match which is always remembered in Aberdeen uh, when he scored 123 not out. And um, there's so many people who said they were at these matches. They must have had a a crowd of about 50,000. Bradman famously met with King George VI at uh, Balmoral when he was in Aberdeen, and there was a great fuss amongst the local press because Bradman was seen walking uh, with his hands in his pocket. Um, not so long ago, um, I wrote to the... There was only two surviving... Um, there's a pattern here, I think. There was only two surviving uh, members of the Scottish team. Uh, that was Guy Willett, Willett and uh, Ian Lumsden. Ian Lumsden was in uh, Australia and he wrote back and um, he told me that um, there was a bit of a fuss about him playing because he was in the RAF. And there was a question whether he'd get leave or not. So they had uh, a substitute for him called Stanley Walker, who was 42 years old and had played against Bradman in 38. But anyway, the, the various strings were pulled and uh, Lumsden was given permission to uh, miss his uh, RAF duties and played in the match. And Stanley Walker very graciously stood down saying they had the better man and the younger man, 17 years younger, to be a presence in the field. Guy Willett also wrote back, and, and his, his letter was very interesting. He remembered that they were told very strictly that uh, the Queen was in advanced state of maternity. Nobody was allowed to take photographs of the Queen. Uh, she wasn't the Queen, Queen then, of course, she was Princess Elizabeth. Um, and also he, he mentioned a couple of incidents of what a mess that Balmoral was in with papers and things strewn everywhere. Uh, and a little anecdote about Princess Margaret, who was walking down the, in the gardens and Keith Miller put his arm around her. Whoa, <laughs> Keith Miller, he was... Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> the, but what, uh, that, what was the... Do we know anything about the conversation between the two great men? King George VI towards the end of his life and Bradman towards the end of their career. Do we we know what they can talk about? I I don't know. I think from what I I understand is that Bradman was a great... Uh, supporter of the of Britain and what it stood for. There was a yes. there was a, a consist, consistency of views there, but uh, the conversation wasn't recorded, as far as I know. I mean, obviously, Bradman had been uh, at the centre of the great controversy, which nearly destroyed the British Empire. So, for him to meet the King and converse with him uh, fifteen years after that must was quite something. 
Yes, well, I know. I know. Braddon was up. He played one match, I think, in 1934 mm-hmm. at the end of the tour there, up in uh, near Inverness in Nairn. It wasn't just playing Scotland. They, they played in north of Scotland uh, eleven, so he did travel to Scotland quite a bit. Uh, of course, in '38, he, he was injured, as you, you'll know, in the last Test match, and I think his tour might have come to an end there. His, his playing tour. I'm not aware of him uh, meeting the King at that time. We probably had a few um, important things to be thinking about, I guess, I guess in '38. And so, hands in his pockets, that, of course, was, was interpreted as a great act of disrespect to the monarch and therefore to Britain, was it? That was the press story, but uh, it, in a way it was probably a non-story, but uh, there, there was a great fuss about it. But they, they omitted to say that the, the King George VI was quite content for this. <laughs> but um, did, did Bradman give the king permission to put his hands in his pockets? <laughs> that's that's the, the great mystery we haven't uh, it's not been resolved. None of this figured in in the Crown, um, Fraser, as far as I know. But uh, Keith Miller in real life was a real um, genuine heartthrob. And um, is there anything known about his? Um, <laughs> His conversation, or more, with um, Princess Margaret, or is this a mystery? All I know is he, he had his arm round her waist, so they're obviously quite familiar with each other. Mm. What what what, uh, what I omitted to say was that Guy uh, Willett did say that the King showed great interest in the doings of the Scottish team. So obviously he'd been either uh, well briefed beforehand, or he he was interested in cricket. Of course, famously there was the incidents when um, I think it was Prince Philip got a royal hat trick. Uh, he, uh, I think, bowled consecutive balls to three three consecutive kings. I think I'm correct with that. Good Lord. Fraser, you're a great authority on the early history of Scottish cricket, and I think you pinned down the first match as being played in 1785 uh, near Alloa, although I've seen some materials suggesting that it was... Cricket actually appeared in Scotland considerably earlier, in you know, around 1730, and uh, that it was introduced... And popularized well, not exactly popularized, but it was introduced particularly by the Han- the English soldiers and the Hanoverian army, which um, occupied Scotland after the forty-five. Of course, that's true. It's like switching a torch on, and the torch comes to land on that match in Alloa in seventeen eighty-five. It doesn't mean that things aren't happening elsewhere. It's just that they weren't recorded. But um, you're right. It, it, interestingly, in um, James Hogg's book, The Confessions of a, of a Justified Sinner, which came out in, I think, the 1820s or thereabouts. It refers to cricket being played in Edinburgh a hundred years ago. And just in passing, it's not as if it's anything special. Um, also, there's reports of it being played by Scots immigrants to America in the 1730s in Georgia and South Carolina. I think you're dead right that the, the Hanoverian uh, impetus of soldiers after the 45 would bring a certain amount of involvement uh, of cricket uh, into the garrison towns. As industry spread throughout the UK in the late uh, 18th century into the 19th century, such things as paper mills in Pennycook, textiles in Paisley, iron in uh, Coat Bridge, textiles again in the borders, these would bring skills and also customs from England. And um, notably, all of these various places were uh, hotbeds of cricket uh, throughout the 19th century. Story about the match in Alloa is, is is quite interesting. The house was old, owned by Colonel Crichton, and um, the Earl of Winchelsea was playing in it. Now the Earl of Winchelsea was involved in the founding of Lords, not not much later. 
uh, and with him was the Duke of Buccleuch, who was named uh, in those days as Colonel Lennox. Uh, Colonel Lennox scored the first century in Scotland in 1789, I think it was. Really? Good and latterly, as the Duke of Buccleuch, he helped Thomas Lord build his first ground, his first Lord's ground. I'm so fascinated by all of this. Go, go take us back to Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which from memory is sort of the first Gothic novel. I mean, it's, it's a lot of Calvinism is in it and a lot of religious extremism. And it's amazing. I'm very surprised that cricket features in it. Well, it's, it's, it's placed in Edinburgh and it talks about uh, the, the character rem remembering things in Edinburgh and going through the meadows, which is an area of field, which it still is today, and the cricket games were going on. I think in, in those days there was very little other sport taking place. And around the same time, 1750, there was a Cameronian pamphlet. The Cameronians were extreme Presbyterians. And in this pamphlet, it castigated the scarlet vermin of hell for playing the game on the Sabbath in Perth, for playing cricket in Perth. I'm sure. As I said before, the torchlight shines on the match in Alawa. Suddenly there's a little mention here in James Hogg's book, there's a mention of a Cameroonian pamphlet. So cricket obviously was happening in various places. Britain's greatest writer, in my view, slightly greater even than Dickens, Sir Walter Scott. Does he ever mention cricket? I don't, I'm trying to wrap my brains and think he doesn't, probably. I don't think he does. Uh, I've read quite a few of his books, such as The Heart of Midlothian and Old Mortality and whatever. Yeah, Old Mortality, what a wonderful, great book, and um, has many of the themes of Confessions of a Justified Sinner, perhaps. Certainly, Fraser, cricket has a head start in Scotland compared to, to soccer and rugby union. Uh, and a lot, I think a lot of um, the early Scottish football clubs actually began as cricket clubs, and certainly on cricket pitches, I think including Celtic and Rangers. But um, soccer and rugby union really take off in the late uh, 19th century in Scotland, whereas cricket seems to sort of stagnate there. Is that true? And why, did this, why do you think this happened? Yeah, well, that, that is true. I mean, if you think about football and cricket in Italy, for instance, Milan and, and Juventus, I think they started as football, as cricket clubs and became football. So it's not unique for Scottish cricket to take the bow to, uh, to football. Um, I think the, the point was that cricket sprang up in lots of different places. It was almost like autonomous in Perth, in Kelso, in Edinburgh, wherever else. These things happened without any central organisation. They, they received a great impetus in uh, 1849 when the English All England 11 played 22 of Scotland. And that England, All England 11 had a player who uh, came under uh, par. And this, despite the, all the big names in the English team, Scotland had a star of their own, who was Charles Lawrence, who the Perth club had taken on uh, as a professional. And he took all 10 English wickets in one innings. Uh, so the... Um, Visit of teams from different parts of England helped to uh, bring the Scottish game, give it a focus uh, and direction. To start with, of course, these games were all at odds, uh, but it, it, gradually the Scottish Scotland were able to play it on their own terms. In other words, 11 against 11. How did the, just incidentally, how did those odd matches work when the, <laughs> the biggest side was fielding? They surely, Scotland surely weren't allowed to put all 22 men on the field at one time, were they? The short answer is I don't know, but these, these games happened everywhere. When England went on tour to Philadelphia, to South, South, South Africa, to Australia to start with, there was matches against odds as well. So I, I assumed that, I assumed that they, they, they were, but I, I, 
it would, be, it would be the same, presumably, in all cases. It feels a bit like those sort of simultaneous chess games when you have a chess grandmaster taking on 30 aspirants all at the same time. Mm. Tell us a bit more about Charles Lawrence, the man who took 10 wickets in one innings. I mean, he is a really interesting mid-19th century figure. He managed the first Australian tour to England in 1866, didn't he? Well, he went out to Australia, didn't he? And he actually was the leader in, in, in a missionary duty, as you might call it, taking the gospel of cricket to Australia. So I think it was this first Australian team was in 1877, the first test match, of course. So it was only 10, 10 years or more since he went out there that he was able to form a team which should take on England on its own terms. So uh, his story is, I think, one that's uh, probably been overlooked in quite uh, significantly. There were a lot of people toured Scotland, didn't they? Um, Australians came over quite a few times. Um, yes, and, well, the Australians uh, came, came over in 78, first of all, and then 80 and 82. And in, in the first match, in 78, the, the Scottish team and the Australians' scores were tied almost in the first inning. So there wasn't much between them. And even in, in 1882, when Scotland lost their, their one-day match, they played a second one-day match and they beat the Australians famously. It doesn't appear in all the records because it was a supplementary match. But play, playing in that match was probably the, the start of cricket at the time. It was a chap called uh, Leslie uh, Balfour Melville, who was the Scottish um, champion at billiards, at golf and tennis. And at the age of 17, he was selected to play in the first ever rugby and union international. Unfortunately, he was bitten by a dog. So he wasn't able to play in that, and he had to wait another year to play that. But apart from these other sports, he was also the Scottish champion at cricket. In the 1860s, he'd played uh, as a backup boy. He was only about eight or nine, and he was wearing his kilt and playing against the Free Foresters. And he did so well that um, he was asked to open innings in the second innings. But he, he was Scotland's champion for many years. He scored three um, scores of 200 one of which was for Glam's Castle against uh, Arbroath mm. in 1908. So whether the Queen Mother saw that innings, I don't know. <laughs> but he became the grand old man of Scottish cricket when they reformed the Scottish Cricket Union in 1909. And at the age of 55, he scored 91 as uh, captain of Scotland against Ireland. So 28 years after his first game, he was still um, a champion player. That was Leslie Balfour, uh, Balfour Melville. And he was connected to Robert Louis Stevenson because um, his grandfather's name was uh, Balfour and he was the brother of Robert Louis Stevenson's grandfather. So Balfour Melville and Robert Louis Stevenson were cousins second time removed. So that was a big name from the 18, 1860s. Amazing. Other names at those times, it tended to be uh, big names uh, that, that uh, caught, caught the attention of the press was Lord George Scott, uh, who was the uh, son of the Lord Duke of Buccleuch, who was called up as a last-minute replacement for Oxford against Cambridge in 1887, uh, filling a vacancy, of course. He scored 166, two separate scores, in Oxford's victory. And that record wasn't beaten until another Scotsman turned up, Malcolm Jardine from Fetus, who scored 140 and 39 in 1892. Uh, Malcolm Jardine, of course, is famous as the father of Douglas Jardine, which will... I didn't realise that Jardine was part of a... Douglas Jardine was part of a cricketing dynasty. Yes. 
The Scots have a lot to answer for. If we're on noble names, probably the most noble of them all is uh, Francis Alexander MacKinnon. Oh. 34th MacKinnon and MacKinnon. Mm-hmm. And he played for Kent and went on the tour of Australia in 1878-1879. He missed the famous Sydney riot match uh, when the Royal Kent Yeomanry uh, might have been coming useful uh, to sort the rioting Sydneyites. But from, 18, uh, from 1929 to 1947, that's uh, 16, 18, 18 years, he was the oldest surviving test cricketer. My word. Where, where, where did the McKinnon of McKinnon learn his cricket? I presume, I presume at university. He'll be, he'll be schooled in England. Perhaps he went to an English school, learnt it there. Playing for, he was playing for Kent. He played for Kent. Mm. Well, of course, that's a, there is an ancient... Scottish-Kent connection, because Mike Dennis, of course, went on to play and captain Kent. Yes, well, I think that came about through E.W. Swanton, who was up in the air for uh, Air's 100th anniversary dinner in uh, 1962. And he'd heard about Mike Dennis, and he recommended Dennis to to Kent. So I think that's how that connection came. I imagine the McKinnon of McKinnon would have had quite a lot of clan followers, clan members, out in, out in Australia when he went there. Yes, he only played in one test match and, and um, he scored zero and five and, and his first dismissal was part of the first ever hat-trick. <laughs> but I, I was very lucky because I, I collect things and I, I sent away for a, a mixed box of, of, of cricket things and in it was a green lily white of uh, 1877. And on the very top of it, was written on the front cover, F.A. McKinnon. And as soon as I saw that, I knew that that book had been owned by Francis oh, McKinnon. And I got this in a, in a job lot for not very much. Uh, I mean, only the whites are worth the best part of £100 now anyway. And of course, one signed by such a distinguished dame must have added value. So that's a, a little personal story that brings me in touch with Francis McKinnon. It's amazing. Fraser, one of um, I'm I'm struck by the fact that there seems to be very little, although there are a lot of visiting English teams come over to Scotland and Scottish teams play in, play in England. There doesn't seem to be any sort of relationship between English cricket and Scottish cricket, and the the English don't seem to really to support Scottish cricket or promote it in any in any way. And of course, when they when the Imperial Cricket Conference is formed in 1909. Uh, it doesn't seem to be any thought that Scotland might eventually be admitted to the proceedings, even though the Scots have, you know, com- uh, contributed so much to the British Empire. Um, is that is that is that fair? Is, is there, do the English neglect Scottish cricket? Well, the last statement, of course, is true that Scots did uh, did contribute to the British Empire. That's very true. One one point to note is that the Scottish Cricket Union was disbanded in eighteen eighty. Uh, there was chaos at the top and didn't reform again until nineteen o nine. So there was no central Scottish body organising anything or to, to relate to. And as I said earlier, the, the Scottish cricket tended to grow up in, in different areas. For instance, the Border League, the Western Union, the East League, uh, the Strathmore Union, the North of Scotland Cricket Union. These um, little lo- different localities tended to run themselves and their, and their, their own tournaments. Where is the most northerly part of place in Scotland where cricket is played? 
Shetland, they ha- they have a ten they have a ten a ten overs ten aside ten aside overs tournament indoor indoor league. So that you won't get any further north than that. Indoor league because it's a bit windy up there. Bowling into the wind in Shetland must be quite a grueling thing to have to do. <laughs> but they, they, that's very much an initiative that's been set up in Shetland itself. So coming back to to Richard's question about uh, England and Scotland, but to some extent. I suppose England was feeling its own way. They had played Australia for many years, but the other countries such as New Zealand and West Indies and South Africa, they were really tagged on mostly in the 20s and 30s. Um, I don't think it would occur to anybody that uh, international cricket with Scotland um, was a runner. Although it's, I think, true that there's more Scottish players who have played test cricket than any other uh, non-test country. Who who are the Scot the famous Scottish players beyond Mike Deness? Who are the other ones you will mention? Uh, I'll mention Ian Peebles. Mm. Ian Peebles, yes, he was the one that gave Bradman great trouble in nineteen thirties. Experiment as a writer. Mm. Uh, I could mention uh, David Larter. Uh, I could mention oh, Douglas Jardine, of course. And Douglas Jardine, he, he didn't maybe come across as Scots, but he gave his children Scottish names, and. When he died, he, he uh, decreed that his ashes should be taken to a remote hillside in Perthshire. So I think Jardine had very much Scottish ancestry in his own mind, although he is seen as an archetypal Englishman. Uh, that, that's arguable. Was the great Robertson Glasgow superb cricket writer Scottish? It, well, it, well, it's a Scottish-sounding name. I don't think he had any. I don't think he was actually brought up in Scotland, but. Uh, he could probably claim to it from ancestry. I would have thought yes. As could Tony Gregg, the. Um... Well, yes, his father. His father. Well, Tony Gregg's father was at school in Edinburgh, as was the Graham and um, Peter Pollock. Uh, the father of the Pollocks was at George Heriot's school, where I, where I have worked, uh, and Tony Gregg's father was at George Watson's school, and these two schools are great rivals in Edinburgh. And a name I'd like to, to mention as well, um, Vernon Heskus Pritchard, who went to school at Fettus and was chosen to play for Scotland against South Africa. But he turned that down because he had to play in a, in a house match uh, at school. And uh, Heskus Pritchard played for quite a few years for Hampshire as an outstanding fast bowler and went on quite a few MCC tours. But he, he was a bit of a, a loner and did his own thing. And he went off to... Uh, Patagonia to look for the giant sloth <laughs> and that gave another cricket, cricketing addict Conan Doyle the idea for a book called The Lost World mm. So Conan Doyle was a very substantial very good cricketer indeed another Scot one famous first class victim yes yes, that's right yeah. as you say his one, one victim was W.G. Grace in 1900 playing I think he was playing for I think, uh, MCC against London County your, your, the story about a Scotsman, the, who was a Scot there you mentioned who preferred to play for a, in a house match at school than play for Scotland? Uh, Vernon Hesketh. That, that is an astonishing decision, very reminiscent, of course, of Majid Khan's decision to play for Cambridge University against Oxford rather than Pakistan in a test match mm. against England. He was captain. Mm. Yes. Even even so, so, right? strange, it's quite a striking him. decision. Yeah. Conan Doyle has the unusual record of being injured, caught fire, because he had a box of matches. <laughs> so injured, caught fire. Yeah, carry on. He had a box of matches in his pocket, and the ball <laughs> struck the box of matches. And he looked down, and there was fire coming out of his trousers. So I think that's probably a unique one.
Where did this happen? Was know? this in an Ashes series? <laughs> <laughs> He's very quick, Richard. You know, you can't, you dirt bowl him a half volley, you'll smash <laughs> it to the back. Was it in an Ashes series? <laughs> but Conor Doyle was a member of a team by J.M. Barry called the Alakbaris. And it was full of uh, literary people, Conan Doyle, H.G. Wells, A.A. Milne, P.G. Woodhouse. And famously, Barry used to say he was such a slow bowler, if he bowled a ball and didn't like the look of it, he would go down the wicket and bring it back before it reached the batsman. <laughs> Barry has a Scottish-sounding name. Well, he was Scottish. He was from Angus, yes. Yeah. Just before we leave the Ashes series, um, you may, not know, may know, Fraser, that the London Library has a very unusual cataloguing system and um, cricket is placed next to cremation, which is, makes it an ideal place to borrow a book on the ashes. <laughs> Sorry, it's a seven joke again. Doyle setting fire to himself. Absent in flames. Absent in flames. Yes. Rich one for the scorer. Fraser, tell us about Gregor McGregor and his career in cricket. Well, I can tell you a bit about that. He, he, he actually happened to go to the same school as myself, which was George Watson's in Edinburgh, but he was there quite a short time and then went on to Uppingham. Uh, he was a notable wicketkeeper uh, and played for Middlesex, very friendly with Sammy Woods of Australia, and he was reckoned to be probably the, the best wicketkeeper in, in the world for maybe the best part of 10 years. Unusually, though, he also played rugby union, and he got some, he got I think half a dozen caps for Scotland in that uh, discipline. So he, he was a, a man about town. He seemed to find his way onto all sorts of different tours, um, MCC tours, uh, and of course he played for Cambridge as well. E even nowadays, 150 years afterwards, McGregor is still looked back as perhaps one of the best wicketkeepers we've ever had. W.G. Grace paid a, a, some visits to Scotland, didn't he? But I don't think he was very successful or, I understand, very sporting either. Well, um, regarding success, he, he did score one century. And um, he tended to come with different teams. Mm. Uh, the United South of England team, the All England team, the Gloucestershire team, his own team. He tended to bring different people up with him every time. He did score 57 against Trumpelier, which is in Coatbridge near Glasgow. But in the second innings, he was run out from the boundary for a duck. So I think the, the, the people who came to see him would be disappointed. <laughs> but yes, he, he did have a, a mixed record wherever he went. He knew his worth, of course. A little story with W.G. Grace, because uh, I was approached by a gentleman who said he was related to him. And he said, I've got two bats to sell and I want to make some money for the cat's home. <laughs> and I said to him, well, I'll buy them from you. And one of them's got WG on it, and the other one's got Jessup on it. And I bought them both for £40. Bargain. Well, his, do his daughter lived in the same village as me, and, and I said to her, can you just go through the connection with your father to, to, to WG Grace? And she said, well, I, I don't know all the details. And, and we discussed it. And then suddenly she said to me, this, this, this statement, we were talking about a, an instance, she said, won't have it, can't have it, shan't have it. Now, this lady wasn't involved in cricket, but that statement, won't have it, can't have it, shan't have it, is something that W.G. Grace said when he was bowled through his beard by Ernie Jones of Australia. 
<laughs> so she'd remember that from her childhood, being taught at the, fam the family knee, as it were. She'd remember that phrase from her life. And I said, well, you might not be able to work out exactly how the connection to grace works, but this statement from you is everything I need to validate the fact that, this, that the bats have come down the family. Lovely story. Very good very good piece of provenance. Another great visitor to Scotland, and I think Scotland played a big role in his development, was Wilfred Rhodes, wasn't he? Yes. The borders have a long connection with Yorkshire. The borders areas are textile mills like Yorkshire. And Rhodes was a youngster, um, 16, 17-year-old youngster at the time, making his way in the game. And he was given the chance to play in Gala Shields, which is seven miles from me. He was unknown in Yorkshire, but he came to, to the Borders Town to play for two years and to hone his skills. Uh, in those two years, he took 169 wickets, an average cost of seven runs each. He was advised at that point that if you want to make a career for yourself, there's no point staying in Gala Shields. You better go back to Yorkshire. You've got talent and potential. So he went back to Yorkshire, and his first year for them, he took 154 wickets in 1898. And the following year, he joined W.G. Grace in a test match against Australia. So, although Rhodes came from, inverted commas, nowhere, he in fact came from Gala Shields before Yorkshire. Uh, and from then on, he was, a, he was probably the greatest left-arm spinner in the world has ever seen. In the modern era, uh, two Pakistan captains made spells in Scotland, Intercarb Alarm and Misbah O'Hack. Misbah O'Hack uh, had a spell at uh, Pinnacook, which is a place you mentioned uh, right at the beginning uh, of Scottish cricket. Bisbal uh, told me he was very, he liked um, Scotland very much. He liked his spell there very much. He loved the people a great deal, but he, he, he found it very cold and very wet. <laughs> well, that's a very interesting point because many overseas players have made their names in Scotland. Uh, to start with, there was Alma Hunt from Bermuda, who was probably the greatest Bermudan cricket ever. He played against Bradman's 38 Australians and he played against Yorkshire. In one match against West Lothian, he took 7 for 11 when West Lothian was dismissed for 48. And Hunt scored 49 himself. He scored all the runs to help Aberdeenshire beat them. Other well-known players are Rohan Kanhai, who played for Aberdeenshire in the late 50s before he was a big name in West Indies and he scored 10 centuries in one year. Kim Hughes of Australia... You mentioned Intercab Halam. Yes, he played for West of Scotland and scored over a thousand runs and took over a hundred wickets in one year for West of Scotland. Misbal Hack, uh, he only played a few games, but I, I, I gather, although he didn't score so many runs, his influence was such to inspire the Pennyquit team. The way he went about things with enthusiasm was a, a great example to, to, to everyone. And the other name I'd like to mention is Bob Massey. Oh. Bob Massey, Western Australia. No, no, we don't like him. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 no. Nineteen seventy-two. I would, I, I'm sorry, I, I, too painful. Yeah. <laughs> the story about Massey is this: that uh, he, he tried to make his way in the West Australian team and didn't have much success. Uh, Graham McKenzie and others were, were blocking his way, so he came to Kilmarnock and he learned the art of swing bowling on damp wickets. And not long after that, he made it into the Australian team, and. In the famous Lord's Test match of 72, when I know. 16 wickets, it was early season. So Scotland was responsible. That was a horrible... It's Scotland was it was all down to the Scots that England middle order was destroyed. In he, re he reckoned he, he learned his skill at Kilmarnock, and, and without that, he wouldn't be had the skill to, to do what he did in that series, and particularly that Lord's match. 
So yes, there's a, a strong tradition of, of overseas players uh, in Scotland. Tell us about the cricketing career of Alec Douglas Hume. It's a very minor career, in fact. Uh, he only had 12 first-class matches. He played for Middlesex, if I'm right, and I think was he an Oxford University team? Oxford. Yep. And an MCC tour. Some of his first-class matches were in Argentina. Yes. With the MCC, weren't they? Yeah. Well, my, my, my predecessor as chairman of the Cricket Society also went on tour, I think, to Argentina. He was actually born in Argentina, Jacques Mendel, and he played for um, Oxfordshire as well. He also went on tour of Canada, but Jack was a very talented batsman and scored 50 off Pakistan when they came in the 1950s. Uh, if I could mention two major names in Scottish cricket, one was John Kerr, who played for many years for Greenock, and he, he famously scored 100 against the Australian forces in 1919. And then two years later, against Warwick Armstrong's team, he scored 103 out of 183. At that time, only two Englishmen had scored hundreds against Armstrong's Australians, and the Australians couldn't understand why Kerr wasn't playing for England in test matches in 1921. And he's perhaps the greatest Scottish batsman of the whole time. The other one is James Aitchison. Both of these were Presbyterians. Kerr was an elder, and Aitchison was a minister. Uh, but despite that, they were very competitive on the field and wouldn't give an inch. But famously, when Aitchison uh, was playing against Miller's uh, Australian, well, it was Ian Johnson's Australian team in 1956, Miller bowled him a bump ball to start with, and Aitchison hit it for four. <laughs> At that point, Miller decided the fun had to stop and bowled him a bouncer, which Aitchison then clouted to, to square a leg for another four, whereupon Miller bowled another bouncer, which Miller Aitchison hit for another four. So Aitchison showed his class by scoring 100 against the Australians. Uh, he was helped in that by a last wicket stand of 41, of which he scored 40. <laughs> and Miller said in that tour of 56, he thought that Aitchison's innings was the best he'd seen uh, all tour. So they are two uh, high-profile Scots that probably aren't so well n- uh, known beyond these shores. Tell us a little bit about Mandy... Mitchell Innes, who yes. only played one test, but... Well, I, the little village that I live in is, is called Stow, and the, the laird of the village is, is called uh, Mitchell Innes. Uh, and the name goes back to Gilbert Innes of the Royal Bank of Scotland, who in the late uh, 18th century was cashier of the Royal Bank and made a, a packet of money. Famously, he had 67 children, none of whom uh, were legitimate, so his money all passed down to his niece, and uh, his niece's name was was Mitchell, and um, the, her family became known as Mitchellinus, taking on the second name just to, as it were, in respect of the uh, bounty from their <laughs> predecessor, rather like Campbell Bannerman did as prime minister. <laughs> anyway, going down going down the family tree, we had uh, Alexander Mitchell, who won the Golf Open in the late nineteenth century. And then we came to uh, Mitchell Innes, which was Mandy Mitchell Innes, uh, who was actually brought up brought up elsewhere, but had Scottish connections and therefore played for Scotland. And um, he was also selected for England, but Plum Warner saw him playing for Oxford University, uh, Plum Warner being chairman of selectors. And he thought, this lad looks, looks promising, we'll select him for England. So, which he did. Um, and he played against South Africa in 1935, didn't score many runs, 
he scored five runs in one innings, and he was selected for the second match as well. But the problem was that uh, Mitchell Innes suffered from hay fever, so he deselected himself. He said to Plum Warner, I don't think I can gamble on playing in a second match because it's hay fever season. So he dropped himself from the test team in 1935. And although he played for Scotland again, he never played again for England. But he was, for five years at the end of his life, uh, the oldest living English test cricketer. Oh, yeah. How old was he when he, he died? I think he was about 90. So Scotland has given us two of the oldest living test players the McKinnon of McKinnon and, and Mandy Mitchell Innes. Yes, that's very true. Mm. Also gave, well, it reminds me that gave Australia a cricketer who died tragically young, didn't didn't it? Um, Archie Jackson. Yes, because he, he, his family came from Rutherglen, which is in the south of Glasgow, a bit like Bobby Simpson, who, whose parents emigrated from Falkirk out to, out to Australia as well. So yes, uh, Jackson was a player who flowered very briefly in 1929, and then um, his career rather petered out because of illness, tuberculosis, that's true. So Scotland has given, um, it may not, has con- may not have contributed that much to English cricket, but it's contributed hugely to, uh, to the players who've done enormous damage to England on the cricket field. I'm thinking of Bobby Simpson, 307. Bob Massey at Lords. So all of these people whose cricketing achievements are seared on the psyche of English cricket lovers. Graham Pollock. Yeah. Graham Pollock. 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 Pollock's bubble. Peter yeah, Pollock. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. I think the problem is that Scot- the Scottish cricket is rather drowned out by football. And in fact, it's, it's, e- it's even worse than that because it's drowned out by Celtic and Rangers. <laughs> The media, the media tend to 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 look for that above all. In answer to the question that uh, how do we not hear about Scottish cricket? It's a very well kept secret, and there are I think about uh, seventeen thousand players in Scotland that play cricket, uh, and it's either the second or third most participation sport in the country. It's not it's not negligible. Certainly. I used to play a lot with Danny Alexander, who went on to be chief secretary of the treasury. And um, he was a brilliant, in, he used to pull left arm inswingers, which would appear to be going out towards third slip and then suddenly reverse ferret and hit your leg stump. <laughs> it was a lethal delivery of, of, of Danny's. Yes. Uh, was, um, better explain that he was Scottish. Um, he was an MP for... Uh, Inverness. Inverness, yes, or part of Inverness. Yep. Can, I, can I mention women's cricket for a minute? Yes, very Please much so. Do, yes. Yeah, Scottish official Scottish women's match was played against England in 2001. Although, if you go back to 1932, a match took place between a Scottish team and an English team at Warwick. And what caught my eye is that four of the players in the Scottish team became stalwarts of the English ladies team. Uh, Betty Archdale, who was captain of England. Myrtle McLagan, who took seven for ten in her first test against Australia in 1934 and scored 119. Joy Liebert and the lovely name Betty Snowball. And I wondered why were these ladies playing for the Scottish cricket team? Well, the, the reason is that they were coached and educated at St Leonard's School in St Andrews. Um, so although they maybe had an English background before that, they all qualified because of their upbringing in, in, in Scotland. And Betty Snowball's quite a fascinating player. She was the wicketkeeper of the English cricket team. And she was coached by Leary Constantine, who used to bowl fast at her. Now, if, if you remember the Bodyline series, 
Constantine was a, um, a very physical threat to the batsman's safety. So the image of Betty Snowball standing up to the wicket, keeping against Lady Constantine, is one to savour. And Constantine's view was that Betty Snowball's wicket-keeping was as good as any male international keeper. She scored 189 for England against New Zealand on a tour there in the 1930s, and that was the highest score for 51 years. So that little vignette of ladies' cricket from the 1930s is a, is a fascinating story. In a way, it was a, a, a bit of a false dawn because they didn't take the field officially until 1979 when the Scottish ladies' team, known as the Wildcats, uh, took the field. And they have, the Scottish ladies have done so well, they are now ranked 11th in the world. And they work, out, they work from a structured pathway that picks up the young lassies from a wee bash to Premier, Premier League and regional teams. Fraser, so the, the Scottish Cricket Union has invested and has followed a, um, a clear pan for uh, Scottish women and girls to play cricket? Yes, they have. And, uh, as I said, they, they seem to be reasonably successful. They have premier teams and they have regional teams. And then, of course, the, final, the, top, the top levels is the Scottish team. So there's a way forward from, from the, the youngest and from the smallest groups to, to the international setting. Hmm. I'd like to bring forward the story of Scottish cricket into the modern era, seems to me a key point is um, late 1970s, 1980s, when for the first time English cricket actually seems to recognise Scottish cricket and Scotland are invited to take part in English one-day competitions, the the Benson and Hedges and the, the Nat West, formerly the Gillette Cup. Did that reflect any sort of Scottish pressure to be integrated into English cricket or... How did that sort of come about after all these years of neglect? I suppose the the question was this: that Scottish cricket would have to carry on in its own way, playing in B and H, bits and hedges, and Gillette cups, and so on. Uh, which they won a few games. Quite often they were beaten quite heavily, but uh, I think in two thousand and four they won two matches against Durham and Derbyshire. I saw them beat Worcestershire once, and so on. But they could either carry on doing that or follow. Other, other countries such as Ireland and try and become a, a separate playing team and they decided if we're going to progress anywhere we would have to join the associates and play in our own right which they have done and they like I used the word pathway before like the ladies the, the men have a, a way forward as well there's a pathway for associate teams such as Scotland which um, in 1999 took them to the first World Cup proper they had two matches in Edinburgh against Bangladesh, which they could have won, and against New Zealand. Although they didn't win any of those games, it was a great event and a great success. Things have been a bit more mixed from then. They qualified again for the World Cup in 2007, but they missed out in 2003 and 11, and gradually got passed by a vintage Irish team. They came very close to wins against Afghanistan and Bangladesh, but it was, wasn't until 2016 uh, that they had their first major victory overseas, and that was against Hong Kong in a T20. That victory might not sound significant, but it was a major milestone in actually getting over the line, having come so close. Famously, they were beaten by West Indies when they were winning, but West Indies slowed the game down and won on Duckworth Lewis. Uh, that was in New Zealand. And then, of course, the um, major event happened in 2018, when they beat England. Um, that was a very strong English team. 
um, very similar to the one that won the World Cup. Um, admittedly, one or two players are missing, such as Ben Stokes. Um, but Scotland put up a massive score of 371 for five, um, led by Callum McLeod's 140, but it wasn't just him. Quite a few other players uh, contributed. And despite Johnny Bairstow scoring 100 in return, Scotland won narrowly, uh, and that really made people sit up and take notice. That's very encouraging in, that indeed. Is, indeed. Is Scottish cricket getting, as a result of its modern successes, is it getting more exposure in, in the media? Um, uh, yes, it is, it is getting more exposure. As I said, it, it's, the, the media can't get past the football thing, and we're never going to win that battle. One of the problems, of course, is after, after the English victory, the, the 2019 season was pretty barren, uh, and in a way, it wasn't possible to build on that. Uh, Scotland have qualified for the 2020 T20 World Cup, and I think there'll be a qualifying event there before you get to the final World Cup. So that's something being looked for, looked forward to. Uh, and they have some contracted players, centrally contracted players here, but they really need, really need the um, competitions, more competitions to, to make it meaningful. They've got a very good coach in Shane Berger, a South African, who's, who's ta- who, who's got lots of good ideas. Perhaps this is a sensitive question, but in, if you look at the history of cricket in Ireland, it uh, went into a sharpish decline after partition in after World War One. Uh, is cricket suffering at all from being seen as an English sport in Scotland? It's uh, a tricky question to answer. That to some extent that is true. I mean, cricket's a sport. Full stop. Yes, it was started in England, but there is an element that say it's an English English sport, which you don't hear in India, you don't hear that in West Indies, so so it shouldn't be. There is an element up here, unfortunately, that tends to look at everything in England Scotland terms, which, in my view, is rather unhealthy. So it, it will always have a, a wee bit of a mountain to climb, um, but I, I think there's a lot of goodwill to the sport in in, in Scotland. Um, particularly with the club involvement. Devolution has made little or no difference to it. It's carried on. There was one incident in the uh, Scottish Parliament when England won the Ashes in 2005 and one MSP thought it was clever to stand up and complain about the coverage of England winning the Ashes, (laughs) this game that doesn't signify up here. That lady was shot down in comments afterwards, but unfortunately there's an element of that, that's true. There's one great Scottish success in, in English cricket, and that was the uh, victory of Fruki in the, um, I hope I've got the pronunciation right, Fruki in the National Village Championship. What was the story of that, and what impact did it have in Scotland? It had, it had quite a big impact. The, the sight of kilts turning up at uh, Lords and Pipes and all that made, made the national press. There was a narrative in that. Fruki did very well um, to... to, to compete and then to come in the final and to win the final. And they are still playing and they still compete in that competition. It did catch the public eye, possibly because it was a, a visual of Scotland doing well in, in, a, in another country's sport. The, the, the scores were, it's a very tight match. The scores were tied and um, we did have the Cricket Society of Scotland, which goes back to 1952 and is the third oldest in the world. We did have the captain of Fruki come to speak to us and he told me a very interesting story and saying that really the, the team they beat, Routledge, were very confident of, of victory and um, found it quite difficult to, to, to find that they'd lost. 
and maybe weren't quite as gracious as they should have been. But many years after that, the captain of Routledge came to him and said, look, you, you did well to win. Um, congratulations. I'd like to, although on the day I wasn't so gracious afterwards, I really feel that your your team deserved the honour and I'd like to give you my congratulations. So I just like that ending of that story, the way that the other team came forward and it, it bothered them. They, they hadn't maybe been quite so uh, magnanimous in defeats as, as they meant to be. And they, they realised that. And good, that put credit on both teams in my, in my view. Absolutely. Maybe when we have you back, Fraser, we can ask more of your very fascinating cricketing life outside Scotland, including, tell us a little bit, though, about your childhood in the Lebanon. Did you see any cricket there? Because it's starting to take off, interestingly, in Lebanon. In Wisden last year, there was a very moving, interesting section about cricket in the Châtelet refugee camps and the Scottish links to that. Yeah, well, I was brought up in the Middle East because my father was an engineer. And we were in Egypt to start with, but I think we just left before the 1954 tour of Pakistan to Egypt. So mm-hmm. I have no memories of that match. And and in truth, I have, cricket didn't occur in Lebanon when I was a child. I was there until 1961. I, I do remember playing with the family, my father and brother, playing cricket in, 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 in the countryside. Um, but yes, it has taken off in, in the Shatila uh, refugee camp in, in, in Beirut. I think the point that Wisdom makes is very valid. It's seen as a game with no baggage. Unlike in Scotland, you see some people see cricket as an English game. The refugees in Lebanon from Syria don't know anything about cricket. It's just a game that some people play. And it's taken off big time in the in the camps in Shatila. Um, I think David Gray, who I know actually, he was the headmaster of Stuart's Melville College in Edinburgh. He's gone out to Brumana School, which is in the hills of Lebanon, and he's encouraging cricket out there as well. We must have, we must invite him, Richard, yeah, to will. come on to this podcast and talk about that we very will. rich and important work he's doing. Yeah, we certainly will. Fraser, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I know there's so much more about the rich history of cricket in Scotland and perhaps elsewhere that you could tell us about and. Perhaps you'll come back uh, and have a second innings with us. But um, for now, sadly, it has to be goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in a still grey south-east London. And goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in Wiltshire, where I'm glad to say that the drizzle has ceased. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for thinking about Scottish cricket. And all I can say is it's sunny in snow.